I think it's so healthy when the practice that you do kind of feeds your energy. A practice that depletes your energy, it's almost impossible to do that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But you know that you're in the right path when you practice every single day. It's tough. It's not It's not easy work. But after what you do, you feel like you're, you're meant to be doing that. And you get the energy that makes you continue doing whatever you're doing. You know, maybe it's your work, maybe it's your life. I think that's the key to having a sustainable practice is to have a practice that gives you a certain amount of energy surplus. Hey guys, before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting development at Evolve Move Play. So we are bringing back our two-day traveling workshops. So that means one of our workshops might be coming out to a city near you, or potentially you could reach out to us and bring us to a city near you. We did this for years. I started When I started Evolve Move Play, I taught traveling workshops all over the world from 2013 to 2019. But after the birth of my youngest daughter, I needed to stay home more with my wife and my three kids. And so we stopped those. But now we have a really amazing staff of teachers who've come up with me through the retreats of the last few years. And I myself had a little bit more freedom to travel. So we've got four upcoming dates here in the States and two dates in Europe coming up where you can come and train with us for just two days. That means it's going to be a lot easier entry point as far as cost and logistics for you to come and join us. So check out what's going on with our two-day workshops in the link down below. And we look forward to seeing you in a city near you soon. We're here today with Masa Suzuki. Um, Masa, it's really nice to meet you. I've been following your work for a long time. Thank you. I know you've been doing parkour for a very long time. You've also got into the movement culture world and you work as a trainer these days, right? And that's your primary work. Yes, I am. I'm more of a performance coach. So basically what I do is get athletes and look at their movement patterns and try to help them perform better in different kind of contexts. Maybe it's martial arts, maybe it's field sports, or even like actors and actresses or dancers. Yeah. Excellent. That's what I do. Uh, and you've been, tell me a little bit about your parkour background. I was listening to something I said, you've been, you're kind of, you're part of the first generation of, of Japanese athletes coming out of uh, the original Jump London documentary. When did that documentary get released in Japan? It was released in 2004. Okay. So there was this uh, TV show called um, Sekai Marumie. It's like one of those like variety TV shows where like there's a lot of comedy, a lot of like things from foreign countries and they were like, oh, check out this cool, crazy ninja sport coral parkour right and they showed a segment of jump london it wasn't the whole thing but um it was a segment of it like maybe like uh 30 minutes mm-hmm. you know and i watched it as a kid and i was like wow so how old and, you at that time wow 2004 right yeah so maybe like 12 11 okay yeah yeah, yeah. So, you know, like the the day after I went to the park near my house, try to imitate, you know, whatever I can, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, but it was fun. <laughs> I remember the early days. I started, uh, I guess, a year later than you. I started in 2005. Okay. I saw one of uh, David Bell's early videos. Uh, uh, was it was it the, the was it um, the Spider-Man one? Uh, it was the one with... Um, Cyril Raffaelli. Ah, right, right. 
oh my gosh that brings back memory with like the crazy backflip right from like the super tall building yeah yeah, yeah. and like uh Sarah Riley was doing like a front flip from the gas station ever then well surreal's video but um okay yeah yeah he does uh, I mean he did that super crazy backflip yeah. wow I I remember man like that was like one of the the first videos that was watched watched as well you know Mm-hmm. Like a surreal David Bell, the Yamakasi, uh, three run. You remember three run? She saw me. I should, uh, yeah, that'd be fun. I haven't talked, I haven't. I just saw a new video from him about his uh, his bamboo setup in his backyard. All right, that's right. And the built on the line, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I remember that. He he actually came to Japan, uh, for the Red Bull Art of Motion. Okay, cool. Um, Oops. yeah, and yeah, I was the MC there, so I got to talk to him there. But yeah, wow, that's cool, man. So, what can can I ask you a question? Sure. So, what what made you go into parkour? Yeah, I mean, I I had been doing martial arts since I was six years old, and then I started gymnastics kind of after the '96 Olympics, and got really excited about that, and was. Trying in gymnastics, I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm six one. Uh, Whoa! You know, two hundred plus pounds. So, two uh, twenty right now. Um, so it didn't come real natural to me. Like I have an older brother who's only five seven and one hundred and forty pounds back then, and he was doing double backflips on trampolines like six weeks into training. And oh my gosh, I couldn't do a standing backflip. I started at fifteen and didn't do a standing backflip until I was twenty one. So oh. didn't come easy to me, but, uh, but I liked it and, uh, and I was good working with kids. So I got hired as a coach mm-hmm. and yeah, I discovered parkour and it was just like, it was like everything I loved about gymnastics, but just one layer deeper and more primal and more available to go do outside. And I love right. it. So that was my story. Right. Right. And like less rules, right. In gymnastics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome, man. So you. You've been doing like what, you know, what's really interesting to me about talking to you is a few things. One, the fact that you, yeah, performance coaching coming out of parkour, that's a relatively unique thing. Like I talk to a lot of performance coaches mm. coming out of the like ecological dynamics right. and things like that on the podcast. I'm also, I'm familiar and I'm, I've done a little bit of work with uh, Yosef and Linda from fighting. Mm. A lot of their ideas are very kind of overlapping with what we do at Evolving with yeah. So it's cool to see someone who's come out of the parkour community who's working with those ideas and how they interact with it. And then, um, and then the fact that you work with MMA athletes, because I also have a strong MMA background. Right. Interesting common areas of interest. So I want to get into those. Yeah, sure. Deeply into them. Uh, you, so you started parkour 2004. Four-ish. Yeah, four-ish. Yep. You were 11 or 12 years old. Yes. And you're probably just training on your own for a while. Did you start to find people pretty early or was it? Nope. No. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so my first year or two, I just trained by myself. You know, I, and back in the days, there wasn't any YouTube 2004. I think 2005 was a year that YouTube was released. So the first year or two, I think the first year, um, I was looking at those like uh, old BBS channels and like looking at those like video links and downloading videos and mega um, com. yeah megaupload.com oh my gosh and like even MySpace mm-hmm. um, so 
what I used to do is that, um, you know that like little triangle button that has like click play and cl- don't click play? You know, like uh, even now, like you, 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 it's a play button, right? Okay. So I, I keep like, keep k- clicking the play button yeah. and like making it slow motions, like. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just pause it so you can watch how people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I did is like I, I got my dad's old video camera, and kind of compared myself from, um, those really cool, you know, parkour athletes that was already like in the game mm-hmm. and myself and keep watching back and forth chucking myself in the body like in the air um that was my first year so i, I learned uh, a front flip and a back flip and a side flip um i'm my own but really messed up form mm-hmm. <laughs> uh in front of the you know those like sand pits that kids play with right so I landed all those stuff in a sandpit, almost hitting my head um, and stuff. And then my father was like, okay, this is too dangerous to watch. So he made me join the local gymnastics club yeah. to learn basic tumbling. Um, and then after a while, I found a Japanese BBS. Because back in the days, I was looking more of the, the urban free flow and a lot of like the foreign BBSs, right? But um, around like 2004, 2005, like a couple of months after, um, I found a Japanese BBS and, you know, I was, uh, sorry? What BBS stand for? Uh, it's like, um, how can you say? Um, can I can I search in sure. English? <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, we used, I, I remember we had all these, uh, you know, like, you had to download the files. You couldn't stream them back then. Right. So Right, right, right. Uh, it's an internet bulletin board. Okay. Yeah, yes. we're going to say message board in English. All right. But yeah. It was on the Bourbon Free Flow message boards. And yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Bourbon yep. forums. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Parkour.net. Yeah, parkour.net. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That brings back memories. <laughs> like, now nobody uses those, but because, you know. I don't think it exists anymore. No. It's crazy because, you know, um, but that's how Japanese parkour started was uh, through the internet bulletin board. Um, yeah. There's this thing called the Nichanneru, the, the second channel, um, which is like, uh, you know, those like uh, otaku animation guys, right? It's like where like those like gamers, otaku guys go and like kind of exchange information. Mm-hmm. So the first Japanese bulletin board was in the second channel, Nichanneru. And it's about like, hey, let's check out this cool new thing called parkour and exchange informations. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was like, okay, we are all watching parkour. Let's all get together and move together. So the first time everybody met was um, like, we didn't really use our real name. We yeah. used each other's like handle names, you know. Yeah, we yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay. Okay. So it's like stuck with their handle names, right? I mean, there was a little bit of that. Most people went by their names where we were, but uh with some of the younger crowd and stuff you saw that the handles sticking as we went into real life, which is a definitely a unique part of internet culture meets 
real culture culture and that that's early early days of the internet but yeah so you you started to find people through the internet culture also mostly young young guys yeah well a little bit older to be like maybe in their 20s okay yeah um but that was the beginning of this uh group called pktk which stands for like parkour tokyo yeah yeah um so yeah it's it started off like maybe like 10 people and then like a couple years later it was like maybe 50 to 60 people gathering up like uh, twice a month to just train yeah so that's yeah that's how it got started but before that it was just all me man my own trying to check myself I remember right the day that like before I ever heard of parkour when I was about 12 I started trying to teach myself front flips and back flips on a wood chip pile in my back oh my gosh I, I could do them on on the trampoline but I was trying to learn them on a, on a wood chip pile and I was, I was thinking back about it and I was thinking about like I'd had other kids who were out there with me and I think I would have like scaled it up but like doing it on my own was was too scary oh my gosh like you know what's crazy like um can can we talk about breaking the jumps Sure. Yeah. What do you want to say about breaking the jump? Well, it's it's really crazy about like the mental factor. Even even with like the the fighting context as well, or any kind of sport, um, having somebody around you to actually have your back yeah. versus going out somewhere, going out there and facing your fear alone mm-hmm. is totally different. Yeah. You know. Like it's um when you're alone, it's like okay, like it's it's all me, it's all by myself, right? And you know you can do it, but you're you're really in the edge, and you can't really have that extra push, right? Whereas when there is your brothers and sisters that you really trust, or somebody who really supports you, right? It's um it makes the process a lot more easier yeah. psychologically, um. It's crazy because have you heard of the the zone of regulations? You know, like there's like the green zone, yellow zone, red zone. Yeah. So I feel like when you're training with other people or training within a community, it's it's easier to be within the green zone Hmm. a lot more than if you're completely alone. Yeah. I'm human. Just being alone itself is a kind of stressor in a way. Uh, right. So being, yeah, we we've seen this with our our retreats that essentially the quality of social connection that you feel mm. an immense factor in how conscious you are in movement and how kind of much you can scale up. And obviously, there's also seeing other people move and sort of reflecting mm-hmm. that and mood. You know, being present people and pitching, mm-hmm. you know sort of some of these probably some of these hormonal systems uh they uh, compete with the the fear system whereas with mm. the system it's a little bit less competition yeah i think so too i think i think um having the factor of like there's other people around you um makes the the fight or flight aspect a little bit more less and it you can be a little bit more courageous i guess mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're Yeah. <laughs> I mean, partially it's practical, right? Like people can support you if you can. Right. Um but also a lot of it I think is is just 
regulating your nervous system through the presence of other people and being able to access, you know, a, a different state of consciousness. Right. Mm. I've never still like most of my injuries have happened when I've been feeling pretty fatigued and not mm. grooved in. And right. Sometimes I'm in this space where like I just feel invincible because I'm it's like if the mental state is there, mm-hmm. you're just tuned in. You, you kind of are in control of yourself in a different way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll go out for a session, I'm tired, feeling tired. But I'll like have a friend who's coming to visit who I know I'm really excited to move with. And I'll be like, oh, it'll be okay. Because once I give them a hug and we talk, chat a little bit, I'll be excited. And it's like, boom, ready to go. <laughs> Your body kind of knows, right? It's like, well, Nah. Whereas if I had to do that session on my own, I might just like turn around and go home and be like, hey, I'll make them now. Sometimes that's the right decision, you know? Sometimes. Right. Well, okay. So you're, uh, I believe, did you live in the States for a little while? I feel like I remember. Yes. So how, so you're, you're in Japan kind of building your parkour, building the parkour community over there. Mm-hmm. And you come to the States, was that for school? Yes. So before going to the States, um, after graduating high school, because um, I was kind of sick and tired of the Japanese culture, you know, there's a lot of great things about Japan, like traditional martial arts or like um, traditional Japanese arts. And, uh, you know, there's some good cultures about Japan, but there's the other aspect where they try to refine you into this like little mold. Um, there's a thing in Japan that says um, the nail that sticks out get hammers down yeah, yeah. kind of culture. Um, so I didn't want to be in a society where you go into the public transportation and everybody's eyes is just dead. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just wanted to get the heck out of Japan um, for the longest time. So after graduating high school, um, I went to Australia for four months. Uh, to, to, to just only to like, learn English because I wanted to go to school and you know somewhere else like Europe, United States. Um, and then I took a gap year uh, to go to this place called Olorup um, Gymnastic High School, mm-hmm. which I've ended up working um, as a teacher after college. Um, but I was in the the power tumbling and circus performance arts department yeah. to just like learn. I just wanted to be a beast in everything. And back in the days, like when uh, I graduated from high school, that's when like Damien Walters came out. Yeah, yeah. And I, I watched Damien Walters. I'm like, wow, this guy is like crazy. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of like researched his background. And I was like, okay, he's a power tumbler. So if I learn power tumbling, maybe I can like, get something out of it, you know? Power? P-O-E-R? Power tumbling? Yeah, power tumbling, yeah. It's like a it's like a sport where it's primarily backwards tumbling. Yeah. And you have this like really hard but really bouncy rod floor that you can need to do something in. Um, Super long. Kind of trampoline. Yeah, yeah, basically, basically. But it's, it's like really hard, so unless you have like a proper technique, it kind of crushes your body kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> I played around on uh, the gymnastics gym that I used to work out had a okay. Couldn't afford a rod floor, so he built his own rod floor out of. Oh no way! 
So we had actually like skis that have been sawed off on the ends that have been put in a line and then, and then, you know, like standard gymnastics. It worked really well. Now, wow. Main places where I was learning my standing backflip back in the day. That's cool. That is, I never heard of that. That's yeah. dope. <laughs> <laughs> Gordy Violet, uh, if you're watching, much respect for the ski. That's, uh, that's, that's genius, man. That's, uh, yeah, much respect, sir. That's awesome. But, um, yeah, anyways, um, after that, um, well, I, I was always interested in biomechanics and medical science. Yeah. So uh, I decided to study while I was in the uh, performance school in Europe mm-hmm. um, to go to a college in the United States. And I was like searching different schools and my main criteria was um, it's not going to rain that much. <laughs> um and Denmark. Yeah, not Denmark. Denmark is uh it's it gets gloomy and cold during winter. Um but it's it's awesome though. But yeah. And then um my second criteria was um they have a strong um medical school or like physical science or uh, kinesiology program. Yep. And my third one is uh there's a close enough gymnastics gym. Mm-hmm. That I can go and play around or parkour gym, yeah, yeah. and the fourth one was uh, they had a strong um, hip hop dance team. Oh, cool! Is uh, when I was in Denmark, uh, I started dancing for my parkour, yeah, for to like uh, learn how to flow better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people in Japan thinks I flow really well, yeah, um, and they they come learn from me how to flow, but that's mostly because I done hip hop. Not 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 only parkour. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've definitely noticed that you have a very uniquely creative flow style in your in your training. Right. Yeah. It's, I have it's... not trained hip hop. I I want to. I've I've done some capoeira. Oh no way. Some slow and 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 smoothness and and rhythmic qualities to my movement, but mm-hmm. hip hop has such an insanely complex uh, uh, relationship to beat that out. <laughs> Anything else goes quite as sophisticated as hip hop does in the relationship to rhythm. Definitely, I think I think there's a there's a difference difference between uh, rhythmicality and musicality. Mm-hmm. Uh, rhythmicality is more like one, two, three, four, one and two and three and four, right? Even capoeira, one and two and right. It's 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 just like really depend on the the on beat and the off beat, mm-hmm. whereas musicality is. You need to understand there's a there's an outlier or a moment between the MB and the LP with the music, um, so you learn how to move your body with any kind of beat or any kind of sound or quality of sound around you, mm-hmm. uh, which gives you how do you say it in it's clunky, uh, stop and go kind of feeling, you know. Um, it's it's not like you move, move, move. It's more like you move, and maybe you stop for a while, but it, it it's it's it feels sound. It's basically like being able to control yourself within high and low speed, mm-hmm. okay. and high beat and low beat. Um, so that's the uniqueness. I think I think contemporary dance has a similar thing too, like hip hop and contemporary dance has that quality of musicality where that other sports or um, dance backgrounds lack. I mean, it's okay because uh, traditional 
dancing, you don't really need it that much mm-hmm. because it's all technique, right? Yeah. My sense, of, my my understanding, I I could be wrong. This is something like you know, you have jazz, which comes out of like you know uh, various traditions and swing and all that, which ends up kind of becoming hip hop, or you know, hip hop evolves out of those, and right. ballet becomes modern. Contemporary mm-hmm. is sort of like that classical tradition, but then picking up all of the influences out of the folk dancing that mm-hmm. developed into hip hop in particular. Well, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much whatever else is out there. Uh, that's my sense of what contemporary is, is it's sort of classical that's fusing itself with everything else. Most definitely. I think I think that's why it's called contemporary dance. Yeah. Is it's 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 this new new kind of dance. I think I think the beautiful thing about contemporary dance is that you can actually develop your own style. Mm-hmm. Um, also with hip hop. Um, so there's this word in Japanese called uh, onkotishin, okay. um, where which means um, understanding of a, something traditional and something old, and deriving something new out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually like one of the primary thing that I do with my work as well, like. Everything with parkour, uh, everything with ninjutsu, which I practiced for a long time, and also with dancing. So did you start ninjutsu uh, in your teens, or did you have a martial arts background before parkour? Or like, how did the martial arts kind of come into your 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 practices? So I grew up in this place. Uh, I went back and forth from Tokyo and Nagano. Okay. And Nagano, where it's like one of the, the main ninja clans come from. So... I grew up uh, going to this like ninja experience places, mm-hmm. like for like long longest time, um, and then when I came back to Tokyo, I met up with uh, this dojo people called Bujinkan. Yeah, which is like um, like Grandmaster Hatsumi, and um, and that's where I started with my ninjutsu. And combined with whatever I learned from Fighting Monkey, Yosef and Linda, whatever I learned from parkour, um, and made it into this like new thing. That that's why my Instagram account is called Shinobi Mover. Okay. Is is I'm, I'm I'm my primary thing is parkour ninjutsu, which makes me a modern shinobi. But um, I combined Ido Portal method or even like Fighting Monkey within that dogma and um use kinesiology and medical science as like a, how do you say, uh, something that connects it all mm-hmm. with like a evidence. Yeah. Um, oh, I was just going to tell the audience, in case people don't know, Shinobi, that's the, that's actually the traditional pronunciation of the characters that are now pronounced ninja, correct? Yes, that's correct. Ninja is some, but something that's, um, came afterwards, like via movies or manga. But um, originally, uh, they were called shinobi or suppa, um, which basically means somebody who hides or somebody who lurks in the shadow. <laughs> I think it's funny. Everything like American Ninja Warriors, huge here, right? We we go to right, yeah, which is great. But I'm always like, what does all this have to all this swinging from obstacles have to do with killing people? I don't know, but I mean, there, there, there is a, there is a part of that in ninja pseudo. Um, so you know, like what we see in parkour, even ninja warrior, 
it is is a huge it is a part of a ninjutsu mm -hmm. uh but it's a very how can you say it's just a corner of what we do so there's this art called tonjutsu yeah. which means um you uh, art of running away or art of infiltrating mm -hmm. um and within that there's like mokutonjutsu which is like using like uh the trees or um any kind of like rocks or like you know to do parkour. yeah exactly it's it's basically parkour or your stuff man you know um climb jump over whatever uh and then there's a suitonjutsu which is basically swimming uh you learn how to hide within water uh katon is like um explosives using fire to kind of uh escape uh dotong is like hiding under the um the earth right so you dig a hole and like try to go in there and um those kind of stuff and kington is um using the metal right so using metal sounds or uh using metal to dig up something um so you know like the five elements right um it's it's all these like a uh, running away techniques is based on the five elements and if you mess so you have well, like fire, water, air, wood, mm -hmm. and metal. Is that metal? One? Metal, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, different sorry? four element systems, five element systems, six element systems. So yeah, it's it's different, and it's it's all like connected to like yin and yang, how we kind of portray the world. So it's all correct and all, um, how can you say? It's uh, related to each other. The mm -hmm. sum is more uh, related to the earth which is six elements. Some is more related to the five elements, which is like human, actually. Because when you look at the human body, it's like one, two, three, four, five, right? With the five limbs. Um, and then this, uh, the four elements is actually, um, it's derived based on the the weather and how the seasons changes. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, so anyways. Yeah, so... And for a second too um so you're you're doing parkour in your teens mm -hmm. sorry i just go no it's okay you're doing jiu-jitsu at the same time or you just kind of kind of off and on off and on and then when i came back to japan as an adult i i dive into it even even deeper okay mm -hmm. when you were in all europe though you were also learning like acrobatics and then yes you were studying hip-hop yes hip-hop um because this is a funny story. So in Olorup, there's different lines, mm -hmm. right? So I was in a power tumbling and also performance tumbling line. And then there's a dance line and there's like a rhythmical dancing and those kind of stuff, right? And there's this really cute girl in the dance line. And every weekend, everybody like goes out to the, like, the bus to go to like the local town to party in like these nightclubs. And young Masa was like, if I dance really well, and if I can, like, bust out some moves in a dance circle, maybe this girl will be interested in me. There we go. It's not a bad Right? So I learned how to, like, pop, lock, break dance, just because I wanted to, like, bust out some moves in the dance floor so I can, like, be friends with this girl. Mm -hmm. How'd that work <laughs> but, out? Well, sorry? How'd that work out for you? Uh, I became friends, but, you know, it was just friendship, right? I wasn't, I was totally friend-zoned. <laughs> but no, it was, it's good though because um, you know, 
that me doing that ended up um, getting recruited with a pretty strong uh, street dance crew. Oh, cool. Locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, which made me go into like different kind of world championships as like a beginner. But I had a parkour background, so I can use my acrobatic skills combined with a beginner b-boying yeah. to make it look cool. Nice. You know, so that's how I got into it. Yeah. So you're... So when do you get back to Japan? Oh, that was uh, eight years later. Okay. So I went to Australia, Denmark, and then United States for four years. Where were you in the States? I was in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, okay. Well, Santa Barbara, yeah. You that far away. Sorry? I, I remember you weren't that far away. It was like... No, 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 no. Uh, across, but they somehow didn't. Well, because, you know, back in the days, I was uh, this young college kid who wasn't really interested that much in education in a way i was more interested in being a beast <laughs> you know um so i didn't i didn't really reach out to that many communities uh-huh. um in a way because you know when you're young you can be very egotistical yeah right um so i think and i i was like more power hungry so um Back when I was in college, I was more interested in climbing the ladder through uh, WFPF. Okay. You know, um, which is, you know, now that I think about it, a little bit dumb, but (laughs) yeah. So I didn't really train with that many people. And I didn't really go out that much besides uh, Santa Barbara, L.A., I, I keep going back and forth, Santa Barbara, L.A., Santa Barbara, L.A., train in Tempest, come back home, train again, that thing, which I kind of regret because um, there's a lot of great communities around United States. Yeah. You know, that I, can, I could have, like, go over and learn different kind of cultures, different kind of movement, but I was um, I was very interested in just going to competitions and, like, those kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, we were doing the first. Uh, what time? What time? What time was this around? When were we in Santa Barbara? Two thousand ten to two thousand fourteen. Yeah, yeah. So we were putting on the first like invitational competitions, okay. versions of two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, twenty thirteen. Right. Uh, Frosty and Fresh and uh, Paul Whitecott and all those guys coming out doing our competitions. Those were the. The competitions that inspired Brene and Tom to create the Spell Paul Four League. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! That's like I because I I remember watching those. Yeah, and I was like, wow, I want to do that too. You know? Yeah. 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 Man, like short short hop from LA to to Seattle on a plane. It's like three hours, four hours. Right, right, right. Man, someday I would love to go out to Seattle. Man, like there's a looking at looking at this. Is it isn't those like uh what was it? The one that looks like a little rock and stuff? It's in oh, Seattle, right? Fuck. Yeah. yeah. Man, that's mind blowing. <laughs> yes. I love that. It's not my favorite part. Um because you know, like it looks beautiful, but it there's really not that much variety of options. It's very like linear, right? It's like oh right. Loops and gaps. Um whereas gas works mark mm-hmm. it's funky and weird and has all kinds of shapes. So it creates oh. more 
way more interesting shapes for me. So if I go down and I'm going to train urban, I will go to Gasworks personally. But then, mm. then my favorite thing about going to Seattle is, is all the nature spots, the right. discovery and big trees. That's where I'm, that's what I'm all about. But, uh, that's my, my thing. Um, you, good. Yeah. Um, you know, what's really, really interesting in terms of like movement and in terms of, um, parkour or anything, right? I think, I think, uh, when you're, uh, de- you are developing a certain kind of movement, there's a huge difference between organic structures and non-organic structures, yeah. which, uh, hugely influence how you move. Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you move in a non-organic structure, your movement and how you think becomes very linear. Yeah. It's, right. It's fascinating. Like, um. So I, I pretty much stopped training in urban spots and in the gym in 2013, just <laughs> exclusively in nature for a long time. Uh, one movement, for instance, that I like never really did for the longest time was climb-ups. Like a, a mm-hmm. climb-up. You almost never find a, a perfectly foul outwall with a perfectly flat top uh, in nature. What you'll find is either something that's like rounded on top and maybe cut under under the bottom and like it's way too hard to do a climb-up. Or it'll be slightly slanted where your feet right. easier than I climb up. Mm. Um, so I still think the climb is actually a really good movement to master. And that once you master it, a lot of these things that happen in nature are quite, um, are a little bit more intuitive. You have some more options. Mm. But uh, yeah, I did like 10 years without really, uh, really being able to work on my climb ups that much. Now I, I have this ninja gym that I train at and finally dialing the climb up sandwich feels good <laughs> but uh it, but it's interesting because there's all these things like lots of cat backs in the ninja gym and just like yeah mm. you know, find a cat back little bar in the right like, the likelihood of that kind of thing is is very low but it's fun it's really cool it's nice to build up these options that i didn't have mm. you know, because of some injuries and uh, family reasons right right you take my kids to the gym a lot right. of uh, just as far as management of the children, uh, right, right. I've been going into the gym, so I've been like my my kong precisions are getting strong and dive kongs and big swings and things. And then I went out to to train. Uh, I, I've been slowly transitioning my training back outdoors again. Mm. I was out training this week uh, on some like driftwood logs and trees, and we were doing a, like a run down sort of like a slight diagonal. So that we have one one log that's sort of diagonal, and there's a gap to another log. That's mm. Not quite perpendicular, but right. Land on it, and then turn and run down it, and then you have these two stumps that you have to take off of that are kind of awkward. Mm-hmm. It's like like boom boom. Yeah, yeah. Into a gap uh, to a like a tree that's bent over over the beach. So it's a really cool line, but um, we're. The landing and turning on that foot was really mm-hmm. challenging because I'm coming mm-hmm. off a couple of ankle injuries. I was just thinking um, about how there's not like when I'm in the gym, there's nothing like that really where mm-hmm. I'm having to to deal with these weird funky shapes. You can yeah. deal with change of direction in the middle of a jumping line in the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, do- I'm doing change of direction stuff in the jumping lines, but somehow I was like, wow, this really feels like the type of challenge that I get only in nature. Definitely. Um, and and that 
makes for a basically a more gyroscopic, agile lower body for sure. Mm, for I, sure. I train a lot at uh, and uh, at a creek that has all these falls. Yes. I see your videos with that, man. That's cool. Yeah, it's a good creek. I mean, it's like uh, well, like going back to your like your ankle injuries and like um between the 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 gym versus nature. I think I think it's highly related to whether you can use um a reaction force. You know, there's action force and reaction force, right? And whereas like a wall, you can you can get like a huge amount of reaction force because you know force comes in, the equal amount of force comes out. Whereas um nature, everything is just organic and also like the angle that you can put you need to put your shins is very different. You know, so you need to really like adapt your shin angle and your axis in order to match the the shape of whatever obstacle the nature provide in order to launch yourself, right? Yeah, there's just a lot more variation. So yeah, to prevent slipping, mm. being able to control your shin angles and your your angle from your foot to your hip uh, is really key. And so mm. classically, if someone's used to training on concrete all the time. And they're like doing a jump. If you take them out on a, on a, on a like wet, mossy creek, they're really likely to slip out because they mm. just don't understand that you can't take as aggressive a penultimate step, mm. or or a last step, uh, or an ultimate step for that matter, um, in in a jump. So when you're trying to, you know, create that big ground reaction force by reaching out with your foot and slamming into the ground, it just doesn't work in that situation. Mm. Step more neutrally, and then mm-hmm. uh, if you're you know, you might be on pretty much just flat ground or flat walls, mm-hmm. have like an you know obviously just going straight down on flat ground, and I mean not straight down out in front, but you know not side to side. All right, and then on a on a flat wall, there's like pretty much the same angle that you're going to use every time. But if you're okay. a bunch of rocks that are slightly slanted in different ways, there's a there's this whole spectrum that has to get filled in of what mm. the angle of the body compared to the foot is to get you the best traction, best force production against that. Mm-hmm. So it feels like you're after a session there, you feel like you're you're tra- you've trained all these like ankle stabilizers, knee stabilizers, hip stabilizers in a way that you're not getting from a session in the gym. Totally, totally. And I feel like um, this is like my performance coach perspective. Yeah. Is that I think more non-parkour athletes, maybe a fighter, maybe it's a tennis player, basketball player, should maybe go more into nature and to move your body, um, especially contact sports athletes. Yeah, I mean, I think parkour athletes should spend more time in nature too. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's just more nutritious for your body. You're getting more uh, a, a broader spectrum developmental package across all of the tissues mm. and for the nervous system. It's more environment. It's more, it's a richer environment. It's more proprioceptively enriched. It's more, um, it, it's also more perceptually challenging. Like your vision, mm. more sound. If you're out in nature and you're like around waterfalls, right? Like being around that really intense sounds can actually be very interesting to try to orient and be able to stay focused on what you need to focus on right orientation challenges is really interesting that was one of the things that was interesting coming back to training in nature was running up the creek and feeling like my eyes were actually bigger like 
eyes obviously are the same size, but there was this sense that my optical nerve and the the area of my brain that was that was devoted to seeing had to work so much harder in this environment because of the contrasting light, dappled light coming down into the creek. Mm-hmm. And then also the huge variation in like green and brown and gray color mm-hmm. with that tells you whether you can put your foot down safely in this in this space. Right, right. So it's like running down the creek was like as much a workout for my sensory system um, as it was for my legs uh, in a way that's very different from what I was experiencing in the gym. Because mm. probably gym is like a, the same light, same environment, yeah, same, same everything. Yeah, you exactly. get used to it. It's the same color, you know, it's one flat color, one flat surface, you know. You can trust it, you know, if you, if you, if your foot is moves four inches forward on a something, it's like, it's not that big of a deal. You can adjust, but like when you're out in nature, like half an inch can, can mean you just completely botched the gym. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, because like I, I train in nature too, especially when I go back home and Nagano. Yeah. Nagano is like, uh, this huge mountain town city nice. and Growing up as a kid, I, I, you know, moved around in the mountains, like jumping around, uh, maybe like cutting the wood with axe. And yeah, that, I think that's, uh, that was huge as a child development. I think like growing up in nature is, I think every child should go to nature. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Every human needs nature. That's fine. Yeah. So I'm curious just to, to divert your you so you so you tore your Achilles tendon when you're at Olerup. Yes, so I was a teacher at Olerup for three years. Yeah, and back in the days, I was um I was again I was very am- ambitious. Yeah, I wanted to get like every piece out of the the small situation. So I was a teacher, but I was also like training myself a lot to become like the best athlete I can be. And also, I wanted to be, I got really into dancing, right, over years. So, I, I, I wanted to be a professional parkour athlete, but at the same time, I wanted to be a professional dance dancer. So, I did, like, professional dancing and professional parkour all at the same time. So, I was also in a dance company, right? And, well, basically, now that I think about it, like, looking back in the days, um... I think I overworked myself in a way. Not that like I didn't take care of my body. I did. I conditioned, I stretched everything. But I think uh, my energy surplus and my mentality, I guess, was uh, very drained without me noticing. Yeah. So I think that's when when I did whatever I did. Basically what I did was... um. I did a convo mm-hmm. straight into a wall and yeah. did like a inward front flip okay. in the wall. Yeah. And it was actually during a, like a, like afternoon class. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching my students, my more advanced students. Okay. This is how you like do, do like a Kong to inward front flip. This is where you need to angle yourself. This you need to, like what you need to do this. Uh, hey, like, uh, I forgot his name, but. There's one student. Maybe it's a good idea for you to actually film me do it, mm-hmm. so that you guys can actually watch it later, mm-hmm. right? 
And while I was like trying to like demonstrate the the perfect form so that can they can like watch it and like rewatch it and try to imitate me, uh, that's when I dropped it. Yeah, yep. I tore my Achilles in 2010 or not. Okay, yeah, a wall run. Oh shoot! It was a series of strides out in nature, running up. It was a 16 foot slanted wall. That. Mm. Uh, up in Squamish in BC, and I um, I was doing three strides in a row on these big rocks into it, but it forced me to to do it on my off leg. So it was, uh... and I'd just been overtraining. So you know, my my ankles were just screaming for a break, and I was mm. I was getting all these weird pains and popping and yeah, and cramps in my feet and calves all the time. I mm. told myself this is the last the last big training session before I take some rest and mm -hmm. took a lot of rest. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, th that those I've never taught myself inward fronts because I know too many people want to run their Achilles on them. It's, it's one of those tricks. That's how can you say it looks cool, but it's just not, nah, not a good idea. Yeah. But you know, especially if you're doing it off of both ankles. So you're saying, so that time of force production is really limited and the angles uh and especially out of a cone just that's an insane insane ask of an achilles tendon <laughs> yeah but you know but like back in back in the days like i thought because now nowadays a little bit less but back in the days like as a japanese athlete like i had very good technique mm-hmm no, like very clean flips, very clean precisions, very clean everything, right? So, in the back of my head, I was like, I, I'm really clean. So, if I do a technique very perfectly, I will never injure myself. Which is stupid. That. No, no right? I'm convinced that most of the injuries are overuse injuries. Right. I agree. I agree. Over fatigue ourselves. We don't do ourselves enough rest. We don't listen to the signals from the body that it needs rest um, um, like that's that's what like when i tore my achilles tendon they told me like you can hang a car for a healthy achilles tendon and it's not going to tear like it tears because there's too many micro tears that have been left unhealed from too many right. haven't fully recovered from mm -hmm. so what you see is almost every time when someone tears the achilles tendon they they had a recent increase in training volume. Yeah. So the training volume goes up for a period of time and it's not, you know, it's, it's okay to increase your training volume, but it has to be stepwise. <laughs> My big problems with, uh, some of the coaching that goes on in movement culture is like, you take an athlete and you're like, okay, well, you're going to train 30 hours a week. Yeah. We've been training two hours a week. Guaranteed injury. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I, I think it's, bad mentality as well actually mm -hmm. yeah. because so w when i was a teacher at olerup i went through achilles tendon i tore my achilles tendons yeah. and then i also burned out at the same time yeah. Yeah. you know um so and i think i think like the reason why those two things happen is because i went to like you know kinesiology kind of like pre-med kind of situation uh like studying and training and i kind of needed to like study 80% of my time and train 20%. Yeah. Right? Um, because English was my second language and learning those gnarly biomechanical, medical, you know, uh, 
was it organic chemistry kind of crap was just a lot as a second language oh, i'm sure no worries I'm so um <laughs> no worries man um but yeah so I think when I was a teacher there, like crazy facility, I have like the the most of my time available for me. You know, of course, I was just like, and I was also happy making parkour my full time job. Yeah, that's really exciting to be able to do. As a, yeah. So anyway, so I'm curious because you you so you already have a dance background, you already have a martial arts background, you have a parkour background. At some point, you start to take on the idea of movement as yes practice movement practice as something distinct from those practices that you already have and you've talked about fighting monkey being your your big influence but did it start with fighting monkey or were you influenced by like you know portal explosion of movement culture um before that well it was actually both at the same time and it was it was based on my torn achilles mm-hmm so I tore my Achilles and I was in this like a huge cast, but still dancing, still doing parkour. And one of my, my crewmates in the, the dance company that was in was, you know, he was like, hey, have you heard of like this thing, like gold movement or like, you know, Eagle Portal fighting monkey. Um, and all of them were like connected somehow, like all at the same time, because it was around like 2014. Mm-hmm. It was like when the whole movement culture was getting to get known, but wasn't that big yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so with a tour in Achilles, that's when I took my first fight in Monkey. Uh, that's when I met like Tom Wexler. Um, yeah, and the, the, my my thought process was like, okay, like I learned a lot about medical science and a lot of the the Western way of thinking, right? I have a martial arts background. I have dance background. I've done a lot of parkour. Um, but if I keep training and keep doing what I've been doing, even though I think I'm doing something right, there's something that I might be missing. And I thought that movement practice offers so much variety and so much answers that was unanswered just by doing what I've been doing. Um, so in order to continue to become a professional athlete and a professional performer, I dis- made a decision to do movement. Also because my physio, my doctor, everybody was like, hey, even if you recover, uh, you won't be able to do the same performance uh, before your injury. And as a like top level professional athlete, you know, uh, you should probably consider a career change, which sucked, right? So, but I didn't want to. I, I, I can't. I wanted to keep doing what I've been doing. So that's that's the, my motivation to kind of get into movement. Were you ever fully? I did. I did. Um, honestly, my power level is different from like back in the days and now because I used to be pretty explosive um, but like my mobility and my sense of um, coordination, my interconnection and my movement quality, I feel it's it's way better now than back in the days because of movement. Sorry, it's interesting because I, I 
I was able to to get all of my power back and more. I was I, my my broad jump was nine feet seven inches before mm-hmm. uh, the battle. Two years after my Achilles tear, I was nine feet nine inches. Or actually, I think I did. Wow. So I was just just short of the ten foot club. Uh, That's interesting. And so I, I really believe, and I you know I think it's really tragic when they tell athletes that you can't come back not mm-hmm. fully because I like. If anything, I would say that my the, the Achilles tendon injury side is healthier and stronger and more mobile than the other side. There's probably a tiny bit of um, like at the very terminal aspect of plantar flexion, it's not quite as strong. Maybe the last five percent mm. it doesn't impact its explosiveness at all. Right. Hair, well, hair off that leg. For me. Um... What's really interesting is that my my sensory, so my power levels actually, I'm, I'm way stronger, mm-hmm. right? My power level is way stronger, and I'm more flexible actually in my my left left Achilles, mm-hmm. um, and everything. But um, my my pinky toe still till this day doesn't move. Yeah, interesting. And what I notice is that. Yes, everything is recovered. I feel great, but in a way, my my neural impulse is different than it used to be. So the the brain signals what it offered. I think I think one of my biggest strengths back in the days was I think and immediately I can do. Yeah, right. Whereas um, after I I tore my Achilles, I feel like there's a there's a slight delay in command to execute which made my power level a bit lower you think that i have more control like neurological injury or do you think that was more like uh just now you're aware of how badly you can get injured in your brain <laughs> more of a governor on your movement i th- i think it's both i think it's, it's it's both neurological and also um a governor and i'm getting older as well yeah, yeah. i know that's <laughs> like i I was older than you, I guess, when all this happened, because I'm—I think I'm about ten years older than you. Mm-hmm. So I was twenty. Two, I was twenty-eight when I tore my coat. Okay. So I was able to come back and be a super superpower athlete at 30, 31. Right. And that is like it's just kind of not as interesting to just try to keep pushing it. It was like, you know, there, it's not that much more satisfying to do a 13 and a half foot full wall run than a 13 foot wall runner. Mm-hmm. That out further, it was like, I was more, I was just in love with moving in the trees and like finding these routes and like finding that subtle footwork and all that mm-hmm. that made it beautiful. So it was like, that's where I ended up devoting my time. And I think that's just part of growing older as an athlete as you you know, there's that point at which you can get power, more powerful so easily. And it's so, it opens so many things up. But then there's a point at which it's like, it's harder to get more powerful. It's not mm-hmm. more powerful just because you got older, but because you, you've you you've squeezed the juice out of that lemon. You got to go squeeze some other lemons. And then you, yeah. don't, you don't stay so interested in that lemon anymore. Cause you find yeah, yeah. these other lemons taste pretty good too. For sure. I mean, honestly, that's so crazy because... I was in the exact same mindset because um, when I tore my Achilles, I think I'd done parkour for around like 11 years, 12 years-ish. And I was like, okay, I climbed this mountain 
And I'm a small dude. I'm like maybe 167 centimeters, which is like five feet something. Five feet six, five feet probably five, something like that. I'm one yeah. seven, so I'm about 20 centimeters taller than you. Yes. So, like, I, I'm I'm a small dude, you know, but I can, I can jump far and do, like, explosive tricks back in the days, right? But I was like, okay, I climbed this mountain to a certain level. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I can do this for the rest of my life. So it's a good opportunity to create something that's completely original and completely me. Because yeah. what I did was like what everybody else did. You know, big big jumps, uh, big tricks. Um, it was about like how many rotations you can do and how many twists you can do and how far up a double Kong and Kong free you can do, you know? Yeah. And every, everybody done that. Yep. Yep. I, so I, uh, I was developing the ideas that became a ball of play starting back in 2005, 2006. Wow. I had, I had the martial arts background and I always wanted to bring the martial arts and the parkour together. Mm. And I had to love for nature. So I wanted to take it into nature. And also like I'd read all this epic literature and so I like remembered ethnographic literature. So I remembered stories about people doing parkour-like stuff out in nature. So that was always interesting to me. And then I discovered Georges Bear and Meto Natural. Started working with Irwin on World of But then I left the Movement Project and just focused on parkour. So in 2011, 2000, yeah, so I tore my my kids' 10 in July of 2010. Wow. And I met uh, Ido mm. in, 2000, in January, I think, of 2011. And Young Ido. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that, so like I had our, I was already sort of developing the ideas. At the time, I called it evolutionary athletics. And so when I met Ido, I was talking to him about the ideas that what would become Evolved Play. And then a year later, I spent some time with him in, in Toronto, and he kind of okay. was like, Followed my footsteps, kicked me out on the road, told me to go teach workshops. Um, but so yeah, 2011, 2010, or 2012, I'm coming out with Evolve Move Play. Mm. Uh, Simon Tacker's got Ancestral Movement. Yosef and Linda have uh, Finding, Finding Monkey Aki. It's cool because like right that early gen of movement culture was much mm. more open source and much more like all these different kind of ideas that were more sort of democratic and then mm-hmm. you know the star just sort of exploded and then everything just got associated with Edo, right? Yeah. Everyone else who had been caught part of the early conversation sort of got shoved to the mm-hmm. side to a significant degree. Um just in the public perception at least. Mm-hmm. I I think it's um back in the days an early stage of movement culture when you started and when I came in as a trainee. Yeah. Um er, there's more cross dynamics, you know, everybody learned from everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Um and we were less of a fanboy. Mm-hmm. We were more devoted performers, devoted athletes, devoted researchers yeah. who wanted to utilize movement practice to develop our own craft and develop ourselves more as a human being. Yeah. Um, I feel like 
I'm not sure if this is a good thing to say, but I'll say because I'll be honest. Um, I think I think nowadays uh, a lot of the movement is associated more of a idealism or fanboyism or a certain dogma, um, which, in my understanding, is different from where a lot of people back in the days came into movement. Yeah. You know, um, because we didn't really care about how we should look. You know, we 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 were more interested in how we can develop the human being right how how far we can push it how deep we can go yeah so it's really um it's cool but also disappointing at the same time to see a lot of people who can't come into the movement culture uh nowadays that they they are trying to become something that they're not you know a, a certain shape a certain skill but how can you differentiate, for example, I don't know, like doing a climb up and maybe doing a backflip? How can you tell which skill is better than each other? Yeah. Right. Or like maybe like maybe you do a one hand handstand or a one arm pull up. Um, okay, that's cool. But how can you confidently say that that is a better movement than getting a black belt in jujitsu? Yeah, I um, you know? written quite a bit about this. Uh, you can check out an essay that I have on, on what it means to be a generalist mover. I've also had a few different, um, you know, Portola sort of students who split and got their own ways, like Rodrigo mm-hmm. Solima and uh, Brandon mm-hmm. Zerlu on the podcast cool. talking about this, this specific topic. I'm pretty critical of the prioritization mm-hmm. in a lot of movement culture as far as how well it achieves the goal of being mm-hmm. I don't think, like um, the one arm handstand, for instance. I mm-hmm. don't think it's an appropriate goal for ninety nine point nine nine. I mean, it, it literally, I don't think it's an appropriate goal for anyone who's not a hand balancing professional. No, uh, or circus that circus athlete. Okay, <laughs> I talked to my friend uh, Yuri Marmerstein, who's a great hand uh, acrobat, mm-hmm. and uh, I asked him, like, okay, tell me, you know, what the process was to get the one arm handstand. He said, mm-hmm. trade it for. Uh, Two to three hours a day for two years. Whoa. Just one hour. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And uh and I was like, like, think about what that would have gained you if you'd spent it on jujitsu. A lot. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you if you went into jujitsu for three hours a day, you know, so, so if your body survives it, right? Say six days a week. For two years, it's got to be a purple belt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Would you? I mean, like, and then the the, the cross transferability, like the, the the domains in which a purple belt in jujitsu is useful, versus so much versus a one arm handstand or two two hours a day of rock climbing, right? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Superhuman, right? You are or of course. Right. Uh, totally. So that was like, okay, this is just, this is not an appropriate goal. But, but I, I brought all this up because you were talking about how, uh, you, you were doing all the, the Kongs and the stuff and all that because it was sort of like, that was what it meant to be good. Yeah. That, that's a thing to do. Yeah. That's what everybody see. I just recently, like, my Facebook served me a memory of 
the goals that I had written in 2012. So, uh, I, um, you know, at the time we were like trying to figure out how to do goal setting effectively. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of really like knowing what your goals was, was new. So my friend, Stephen Lowe, who wrote Overcoming Gravity, like introduced really the idea of smart goals, specific, mm-hmm. actionable, uh, right. actionable, realistic, time sensitive. Right. So I wrote out this set of goals and, uh, so my goals were, it was something like run a, a 40 yard dash in 4.6 seconds, 36 inch vertical leap, uh, straddle plunge. Um, oh shoot. You know, uh, you know, five, cl- uh, strict bar muscle ups. Let's see. Um, and then we like win a bunch of parkour competitions. It's and, like young, young rough it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I like, I looked back on it. And uh, at the time, like I felt like a failure because after that year, like I hadn't achieved like most of those goals. Mm. And I look back and I was like, "Holy shit! I I made so much progress, right? Like, because I I went from like a thirteen and a half second hundred meters to a twelve hundred meters, so not forty. That because I went and trained with an actual track team, so right? Hundreds instead of, but that was that was a massive. That's massive. Oh my gosh, definitely like thirty-three inch vertical leap, right? Um, you know, I could do five strict wing muscle ups, could do one foot bar muscle up, you know, closing in on a 10 foot broad jump. And I was like, man, this is, these are not particularly well aligned goals. And it's way too many to be trying to work on it one time. Mm. So God, if I had, if I had, uh, I'd hired Edo, he would have told me too many, too many goals. It's not, <laughs> might've been useful for me at the time. Mm. But yeah, one thing was like, wow, I actually made really good progress if I had understood in context just how mm-hmm. all those things were to achieve and how unlikely it is to improve at all of them at once. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, the other thing that happened in 2012 was that, so I had, I competed in 2011. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 2011 was like the big year for me as a competitive parkour athlete where I went to New mm-hmm. York, I went to the Apex International and mm-hmm. I ran competitions and ran in them. I did all right. I mean, I was not the world's best parkour athlete, right? But I was, <laughs> I was solid. Um, mm-hmm. And I was improving. But when I went into the next year, I, I realized that all the competitions were going to take place in gyms. And I was just sick of being in the gym and I was mm-hmm. up with moving in the trees. And so I like, mm-hmm. like I, every time I'd be like, she'll go train in the gym, prepare, do some strides on rails, get used to the type of stuff I'm going to face in competition. Am I going to go train in these trees? Mm. So I end up going to train in the trees every time. I chose what I loved and what my goals were. Right. I right. couldn't do a straddle plunge and I couldn't do a handstand for a minute and I didn't even compete. Um, and I was like, wow. I looked back and I was like, I'm so much more interesting as the guy didn't achieve those goals than the guy mm. who did that. It had been really impressive. I could do those things. Right. Impressive in a way that's like a generic movement influencer, right? Oh, yeah. Definitely, man. And I, th- I think what it is is that you and I, we are ourselves. Yeah. Right? Um, which is great. But um, the, the, the harmful thing about social media is that you see so many information, so many things that comes at you 
it's like almost like information overload and you it makes you feel like um the grass next door is a lot more greener mm-hmm. oh yeah Everyone. whereas you know i th- I think what makes a human being very um easy to like is the people who understands themselves mm-hmm. and understands where their happiness comes from because being good at something or being achieve your goal doesn't mean necessarily mean that you're actually happy. Yeah. And I, I feel like being happy and loving life has way more value than being some kind of beast in something, you know? Yeah. I um I had a conversation with uh AJ Roberts, who's a powerlifting world at a paleo effects a few years ago. And he, he basically told the story where he said, you know, when he broke the squat world record for the first time, he took it mm-hmm. to build up to it. And uh, he he's about five foot nine, mm-hmm. eight enough to weigh 360 pounds. Um, and so, law. yeah. So he, <laughs> all the time, he was constantly uncomfortable and having to go to the bathroom and shitting all the time. Uh, and he, you know, he could do a standing backflip. He's incredibly powerful and athletic, but he got winded walking upstairs. Right. And he would go into the gym and torture himself under the weights and go mm-hmm. home just absolutely destroyed and aching and in pain and be grumpy and terrible to his girlfriend, wake mm-hmm. up the next morning in terrible pain. And just ramp himself up into a rage to make himself go do it again. <laughs> so he does this to himself, to himself for two years. Goes up, breaks the world record, and doesn't feel anything. <laughs> so he decided that you know clearly he needed to break the world record twice. After this whole process again for two more years, breaks the world record and doesn't feel anything. And uh, and I've heard that I've heard that. That happens, like to like Olympic lifter, uh, Olympic winners, quite often, right? Mm. Entire life is built around the story that that winning a gold medal is going to mean everything to them, and that mm. sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it's just crushing because their entire identity has been built around it. Mm. So, in my own work, I've really come to this idea that the ultimate purpose of our movement practices is to give meaning to life. Mm. Um, and we have to we have to understand ourselves and actually care for ourselves to understand what to actually guide ourselves towards what's meaningful for us. Yeah. So for me, as it turned out, having like handstands really are not very meaningful to me. Like mm-hmm. I achieved a thirty second handstand and it was that was fun. <laughs> Which I, right. Doing a really beautiful route in a tree makes me happy you know like i look back on routes that i've done and jumps that i did and it fills me with a sense of like deep gratitude that i got to have that moment and uh and so so i that's that's what i train for right like i mm-hmm. i'm a, i'm attached to continue to train to continue to grow because it just is so damn fun to do when i do it you know and because it helps me become a person that I aspire to be the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's so healthy when 
the practice that you do kind of feeds your energy, uh, whereas it depletes the energy. Uh, it's it's um, a practice that depletes your energy. It's it's almost impossible to do that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But you, you you know that you're in the right path where when you do a practice, you practice every single day. It's tough. It's not it's not easy work. But after what you do, you feel like you're you're meant to be doing that, and you, you get the energy that you know makes you continue doing whatever you're doing. You know, maybe it's your work, maybe it's your life. But um, I think I think that's the key to having a sustainable practice. Mm-hmm is to have a practice that gives you a certain amount of energy surplus. Yeah, you need to be banking something out of the practice. Mm-hmm. Totally. So I'm curious about your how, like for me, I think it's really interesting that the whole idea of movement culture and its relationship to parkour. Right. A lot of ways, all the things that kind of come up in movement culture, not all of them. Mm-hmm. But so many of them were actually within the practices and the founders of parkour. Definitely. Hip-hop dance, capoeira, kung fu, mm-hmm. all that like stuff that uh, the Yamakaze were training mm-hmm. in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when Ido came out with the like one-arm handstand, you know, one-minute one, one minute handstand the hard way, mm-hmm. I wanted to send Xiao a message and say, do a one-arm handstand on the side of a, or a one uh, a one-minute handstand on the side of a building. Yeah, so in the parkour way. Because I feel like Shao would do that, right? Right, and definitely. I feel like that, how complete and how pressing in so many ways the early expression of parkour was. Mm-hmm. Really undervalued, right? Like, definitely. Even the nature stuff that I do, like, people don't know that David and Yamakazi and Stefan were down training in Fontainebleau and it's ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like go back and watch on a monster's or speed airman and watch David do this huge freaking lachets from this tree. Mm-hmm. It was there was so much of it's there. So I'm not I'm always kind of like trying to like obviously I created a ball in play. It's my own sandbox where I get to define the concepts. Mm-hmm. And I, in within evolved play, I think of parkour specifically as exploratory locomotor play. Mm-hmm. Then I think of parkour also as the base DNA of everything else that I do. Mm-hmm. Like parkour provides the grammar that then I apply to the martial arts, that then mm-hmm. I apply to playing with with objects. Right? I don't. I don't train martial arts in a traditional kung way or even like a sports science way exactly. Like obviously. Mm-hmm. Deeply influenced by ecological dynamics and motor learning, but I feel like right. that's the fundamental idea of how to approach the practice from a play-based way. Experience mm. of training parkour. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious for you how you differentiate being a parkour practitioner from a movement practitioner, and how those two things uh, interact for you. Like, very good question. Um, can I be honest with you, man? Sure. I I think I never differentiate myself as a parkour athlete and a movement practitioner. Okay. Um, I feel I feel like uh, even when I was doing a park doing parkour like professionally, yeah. uh, I was I was had this feeling where I, where I did parkour, but I was still a dancer when I was doing parkour. Yeah. Um, 
I was still a uh, ninjutsu, like a ninja, you know, shinobi when I was doing parkour. Um, but I felt the same thing when I was dancing. When I was dancing, I was a contemporary, professional contemporary dancer, feeling, um, wow, like I feel like I'm doing parkour on the floor, right? Um, even, even when I was uh, sparring or using the katana, uh, I'm using an object, but maybe maybe I'm using it in, in a parkour or parkour way, yeah. and it it became like it's not it. In a way, my identity always lied as a mover than a single thing. You know, um, because from a very early age as a kid, I noticed that a lot of things cross over with each other your experience and everything um, and makes who you are. Maybe it's the music that you listen to, the people that you hang around, and it, it gives you a certain amount of flavor, right? Um, and this flavor is different from each other, but it, it can be always develop, be developed through more experience and more learning and opportunities. So... Nowadays, I, I always look through the, the crossovers and the, the crossovers between the practices and what makes a practice different. You know, so for example, the for me, parkour is innovation, which is very similar to what is a, is a, is a crossover between dance. What's what makes parkour and dancing very similar is that it's a it's an innovation within an environment um which is beautiful because you can create a line through a canvas of setups maybe it's nature maybe it's um you know the city but you you need to you need to learn how to like, visualize something and make your visualization into reality which is the same thing with dancing. You 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 imagine a choreography. You listen to the music. You listen to you feel the environment, and you create something, right? Um, whereas the crossover between ninjutsu and parkour is is actually the the ability to adapt. So ninjutsu is about it's not it's it's not really a martial arts, but it's actually a way of thinking. It's it's actually the ability to, to be a shinobi is to have the ability to wear different masks or being a actor of many roles. So you're in an environment, you're in a situation, and maybe you're you're an athlete at some point, or maybe if you go into somewhere else, maybe you're a musician, right? Maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're an actor, um, but it's all dependent depending on the context. And you need to have the brain and mind to easily adapt and think fast, depending on where you are, which is very similar to parkour as well. Yeah, you don't have to infiltrate, right? You because you're not a spy, but um, you need to know how to think fast. Depend on the situation that you're in, or else you can't bail, right? Yeah. There's the difference between failing and bailing, and there's a difference between pretending to be something and actually actually acting to be something. Um, so for me, ninjutsu and parkour, there's a lot of relatively in terms of adaptation. So, um, and 
training in parkour is about logical thinking, right? So it's it's it's, it's a lot. It's about um, biomechanics. It's about mechanical science. Um, it's about c- computer science, um, and it's actually understanding the the principles of of how the world actually works, and to applying into your physical body. So like a problem solving activity. Yeah. My mentor, John Vahey, introduced this term, the agent arena relationship, which I really like. Like you're, um, you're constantly in life trying to f- frame such so that you have a frame things so that you have an appropriate agent arena relationship. So if you imagine that you uh, show up to a, a tennis court in football gear with a football, you, you've mistaken the type of arena that you're in. Mm-hmm. That, that attunement between the environment and the, the agent is not properly there. Right. So doing when we go out and do a parkour is we are we're attuning to specific environments and learning the potential of them. So in some sense, you can imagine that like uh, what's happening in jitsu is 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 a similar thing, right? You can say uh, that you you're abstracting that basic, very physical relationship that the parkour athlete has with the environment into the environment as a more abstracted thing, the environment yes. of playing a role. Um, yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, whatever you need to be, yeah, whatever you need to be. But I, yeah. um, one of the things that I've always, this always really struck me about parkour is the sense that it, it forces you to have a relationship with the truth, right? Like, Definitely. You can, you can't say I can do that jump, but you can do that jump, right? It's like, if you say that and you try like. The truth just smacks you down. Mm. And I feel like in our culture, when we live so much in the digital world and we don't we don't do physical things nearly as much as we need them, it's it's very easy for people to become very disconnected from truth. Mm. Something like parkour is just so deeply informational to the body that reality exists outside of you. And if you if you or wrong in your calculation, you pay the price. Yeah, totally. I th- I, th- I think I think it's also like uh, it it forces you to actually um, stay true to yourself and actually um, look into yourself more deeply. Mm-hmm. You no, know, because if you, for example, like we both ignored our what our body has told us and what our mind told us, and we paid a price. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um. So in a way, like parkour, or honestly, like if you do any kind of movement practice, um, truthfully, you know, um, it's it's about being humble and being also innovative. Uh, it's it's also becoming hungry, you know, all the time, and always being truth to yourself and others, because if you don't, the practice will smack you down. You know, and it's 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 how it is. You know, that's why I feel like uh, people should talk less and move more, <laughs> especially in Japan, man. Because in Japan, it's um being a performance coach in Japan is very interesting because not many coaches and performance coach actually moves. You know, they read something in the article, maybe like uh. You guys in the United States do it, and they look at it in an entrance. They're like, "Hey, this person said this, so it's probably right." But they haven't 
they never done it themselves, but they, they use it in their athletes. Yeah. You know, um, where as I feel like you needed to keep true to yourself and constantly do it to yourself before doing it to the others. And I feel like that's where movement practice is so unique is that for me, at least in Japan, is that you needed to show it yourself, live it yourself, understand yourself before sharing to others. Yeah. Because if you can't, if you can't do it, you can't teach it. You don't know because, um, another great kind of insight from, uh, John Rubeke is this idea of the four P's of knowing. Four P's. There are, uh, there's propositional knowing, which mm-hmm. is associated with semantic memory, right? Like must, mm-hmm. um, like a rule, like, you know, keep your back flat on a deadlift. That's a problem. Right, right. Then there's procedure, right? So, mm-hmm. you, you know, you can tell lots of kids to, to keep their back straight on the deadlift and mm-hmm. just start to pick it up. They're just going to brown out completely because the connection between the words and the mind and the actual physical action isn't there, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe tell someone how to describe how to drive a car to somebody that they're not going to be able to drive a car. Right. Those are the procedures. Procedural. And then there's perspectival, which is like, what is it, what is it actually like to experience it? How does the world arrive for you? So when you're driving a car, uh, you you have to attune to specific information sources. So that's the agent arena relationship. Mm-hmm. Participatory is kind of like knowing by being, right? It's associated with the memory that actually gives you a sense of self. That's not. And the thing is that you, it doesn't matter how many articles you read, you're only absorbing propositions. Mm-hmm. Propositional, right? Mm-hmm. It has to exist on those other le- levels. So if you if you go read the latest sports science and you try to apply it, uh, you actually only know something on a very shallow level. And there's immense information loss. Whenever somebody who's brilliant and knows how to coach puts it down in words, this huge source of information that's not there. And if you as a coach then don't go back and practice it, feel it out, mm-hmm. you try to apply it to people, you're missing 90% of what actually makes the magic. Definitely. Definitely. And, um, you know, um, you know, this, uh, philosopher called like Pascal. I've heard of Pascal. I haven't read. Pascal. I think, I think it's like a French, French philosopher. Pascal. Yep. That's yeah. Right. Um, and he's, he, it's like, there's a really famous, um, letter that he sends to his friend mm-hmm. saying that like, Hey, I'm sorry that this letter became so long yeah, yeah. Uh, because I didn't have that much time. Yes. Um, I feel like if it's, um, something that's only pers- perspective, um, you know, or like propositional, pro- yeah, pr- propositional, propositional, um, the information is copy and paste. So it's not your own true words, right? Yep. Where, uh, where if something is actually lived and actually understand truly, you can, you can choose the right words and it can be a short word and a short sentence, but it hits very hard. Yeah. Well, you can, you can, you can attune the words to the audience and to the moment, mm. right? So the words that will work in Japanese like this is, I think, a huge problem in the martial arts. Like analogies and images 
that are very specific to Asian culture yes are ported directly over and are expected to you know just like get translated into English and then have the same the same ability to organize behavior and they don't they just sound they sound cool and mystical right they sound no. cool and mystical because they don't actually freaking mean anything in the context you know uh what's that movie um yeah i watched cobra kai okay. with my wife right and they make this like normal japanese words look so cool and sound so cool i'm just like as a japanese person it's it's kind of cringe because you 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 hear it. I'm like, yeah, but it, it, you're just saying like start to fight or like you know or like do this way. But you're like, and I'm like, okay, like what what do you actually want to do? You know? Yeah, I saw I saw an Indian comedian recently who is like, uh, Westerners don't know what Namaste really means, right? I actually don't know either. Namaste is like what all the youngies said. Oh, namaste, and like they the. It's supposed to be something like may the the light of the divine in me recognize the light of the I don't know, but like he's like you know the way we use it in India is like sub, right? right. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, so we can we can you mystify things by just using a different language or analogies, you know, uh, lotus flower opening or something like that. It's right. Like, you know, it's like maybe it's related to kanji and all these things that like have these layers of meaning. So, uh, one of my the thinkers that I like as far as cueing is um, this guy named Nick Winkleman, and he has a great book called The Language of Coaching. Um, and in that book, he talks about I think his PhD research was so his PhD research was on external versus internal cues. Attune mm-hmm. the relation the athlete to the relationship between themselves and the environment. Internal cues in, tune you to relationships internal to the body. Mm-hmm. So you tell someone to squeeze their glutes harder during a squat, that's an internal cue. Right. Right. If you tell them to thrust their hips forward, right, or drive the, the bar up, right? That's external. That's an external cue. So mm-hmm. the cues that he was looking at was, you know, was in sprinting. So it was like, you know, maintain, you know, you have a 45 degree angle on your shin. So that's mm-hmm. an internal cue. It's also like the body's just really bad at predicting what angles are so there's it's a it's a poor cue in a variety of ways so then how do you cue someone to t- maintain a low angle mm-hmm. as that coming on the sprint start so he used the cue um take off like a helicopter instead of or take off like a jet plane not a helicopter so you can imagine a helicopter like this uh, yeah but uh, um, now imagine if you lived in a culture that had neither helicopters nor or a jet plane, no jet planes. <laughs> but people are like, this has been passed down for a thousand years as the proper tradition for how we're going to queue. Right. I think that's a lot of what's happening as like Chinese and Japanese martial arts are pouring mm-hmm. over to the West. Definitely. Yeah. How, how, because I'm curious because you've done Japanese martial arts as a kid, right? Uh, I did Tang Sudo, so that's right. Korean. It's it's actually basically just Shotokan. Ah, uh, uh, okay. But you know, it's changed a little bit. But if you look at the history of it, it's uh, um, uh, sorry, who who's Masayao? No, Oyama is. So Oyama Kaiokishin, or I can't remember. 
There's Funakoshi. I, I don't remember my uh, my Japanese masters right now. My brain's too slow. No, nah, no worries, man. But essentially, there were a bunch of Korean students of him who, uh, and they took. Uh, I mean, Tong Sudo means. I think it's like. I think it means Tong Fist Way, right? Like Tong Dynasty. Right. The guy named Tong. Well, Tong is in the Tong Dynasty in China. Oh. Okay. Tong Ruspa referring to China and the original, the original karate means Chinese fist, basically, mm-hmm. because the idea was that the Okinawans had imported Fujian style mm-hmm. martial arts into that, and then the, the Japanese, you know, it, it gets reinterpreted as empty fist way. Right. They don't like the the nationalist, you know, implications when when nationalism comes into. Into the east there, and then so the same thing happens with Tang Sudo, mm. um, and then Tang Sudo becomes Taekwondo. But uh, I Tang Sudo when I was a kid um, for a couple of years. Yeah. Then I went to Aikido. Aikido would be the Japanese martial arts, and then yeah. So we I did learn some of the the Japanese terminology, like mm. uh, Juju Katami or right, right. Wow. Um, but yeah, I've I haven't spent that much time in like a a true traditional Japanese school. Okay, but how, how did it feel like listening to this like Japanese language and even Korean language like going back and forth in American context? <laughs> very very interesting. I mean, I don't like I've been around a lot of internal martial arts teaching and like just like dabbled in it or been around people who are into it. And that's really where I have this experience of it. I don't remember being a kid and like learning Tang Sudo and like, like we, we, we countered in Korean, but I, I don't remember that. Right. That's um, funny. And, you know, we, we talked about chi or mm. uh, chi in Aikido, but. Mm. What's your, what's your understanding of chi actually? What's your, what's your image? Well, I think that it's portrayed in the West often as basically magic energy projection. Um, okay. Like Hadoukens. Hadouken. Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> right. I don't. I've I've seen various attempts to explain he as like, you know, essentially neural energy concentration. You know, I I just don't pay that much attention to it. Right. Like I, I'm strong. My background is primarily. MMA at this point, like when right. I all I I started training uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. There's no talk about key in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu Muay Thai. Mm-hmm. No discussion of that. And then I've done a bit of uh, Russian martial arts, um, kind of along the line. Well, some Sistema, some other stuff that's related to Sistema, mm-hmm. um, and some Capoeira. And then and then I like I've been. Taught by lots of teachers who have internal martial arts backgrounds, like mm-hmm. Joseph, um, right, and Simon. But you know, I've never heard Joseph talk about King. No, so. it's uh, well, for for me, like uh, practicing internal martial arts, I feel like she is very related to like uh, thermodynamics, and you know the internal internal energy in terms of like electrons going through the body so i th- i think it's like the warmth or whatever heats that's going on interpret and to more of a magical way 
is like that how I feel. Because, yeah. um, you know, in like Japanese martial arts, they do like, they do a punch and then like the guy in the back flies away, that kind of shit, right? Um, a lot of it is fake. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you, you can't you can punch in a way that you can make the person feel more inside than outside. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel I feel like those stuff is more related to energy production and bone angle more than like magic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Basically, how the depth at which you sort of arrest the punch. Yeah. And also the 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 kind of there's different delivery mechanisms for punching. There's different levels of tension that you can hold in your hand. There's different mm. targets. And then you can make a punch more uh so the wounding energy of an impact is proportional to the area and time over which it's just yes. So you're when you're trying to create a very damaging punch, you want it to essentially be to s- spike a very high momentary uh force transient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there's a way of tensing at just the right moment as you're impacting that gets the force to arrive much more abruptly. Whereas if mm-hmm. the, if the force is, is distributed more through a push, you're going to, it's not going to arrive in the body in the same way. There's a, there's a, there is a Jap- Japanese term for that, that capacity to, to essentially tense at just the right moment to be relaxed through the punch and the power production, and mm-hmm. then to have the right degree of penetration before the hand gets hard. It's uh, it's called uh, I think nukite something like that. Yeah, some, maybe I remember, but yeah, yeah, I I know what you mean though. Um, but you you know what's really interesting? Um, what I I found traditional martial arts interesting is that it's it's actually very biomechanic. You know, um, I, th- I think a lot of the movements, even though they say it's it's chi, it's it's more related to how well you move your body and how well you transfer energy through the earth to your body to yeah, to produce energy. One has good chi just means someone is well coordinated and this has good muscle synergies. Yeah, that that's that's what I feel. Yeah, yeah we just don't. They didn't have the language to describe that, or the, or it was. It's not even necessarily they didn't have the language, but that the symbolism and spirituality were sort of intrinsically linked into the mechanical understanding in a way that doesn't really translate today. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, if you look at like alchemy and things like that, the the subjective and the objective were not separated in the same way in the past, and so. Mm-hmm. That's the language that that comes out of it, and you know, most people I think you know, real martial artists always understood that, you know, the way that we're talking about chi referred to something that maybe had these symbolic meanings that were available, but those weren't actually the meanings that that determined what happened in fighting. Mm-hmm. Then when you when it's re-exposed to the West and it's picked up as a form of mysticism, then you end up with these these uh these claims that are just very bizarre. And- yeah. For sure. I th- I think um there's this word in Japanese called um kotsushu nikuju. Okay. Um and I love this word because it's it's saying that um 
you use your bone alignment more than brute strength, brute, brute muscles. Yeah. And that that that's the secret of um cutting through somebody in a very efficient way. Yeah. I mean it's just it's just efficient athletic movement, right? Like it is. You know, if you're a rock climber, mm. good rock climbers are much, much stronger than bad rock climbers, but they use much less strength to do the same movements. Mm-hmm. Because they, you know, I actually discovered this recently. I was I was reading the Inner Game of Tennis. I think I mentioned that. Ah, yo, I have that book. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's a cool book. Great book. He was talking about, right, like, you know, getting out of that, 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 like, instead of telling your body what exactly you want it to do, just pay attention to what it's doing in a specific area. Mm. So instead of saying, I want to like grip really hard on my climb up, right? Like rip that wall with your climb up, just like, how does my grip feel? Right. Attend to my grip. And I discovered that I was over gripping when I was doing climb ups, which means that I have too much tension in my arms, which actually slows me down, which prevents speed in the uh, development of the climb up. But okay, well, you know, for years, like the, the grip was a, was a real challenge. So I'm, I'm focusing on just getting more and more force in that grip. It's actually not helping me at this stage. Mm-hmm. So, so again, it's like, well, you know, there's a, there's a point at which more force is actually inhibitory. And if you work in a, in a grappling context with an untrained person, a big, strong person, they're going to put themselves in positions that are not mechanically strong. They're going to apply extreme muscle tension. They're going to exhaust themselves very, very quickly. Yeah, that's it. Having more muscle force to apply is always useful. Um, mm-hmm. But you're you're always sort of trying within the athletic act to, to achieve it with less less effort mm-hmm. for sure so um before we go i wanted to ask you about uh how your encounter with yosef and linda and fighting monkey has impacted the way that you train parkour and the way you see that and how those those things interrelate for you mm, it made me allow to be more of an innovator Okay. than a follower, I guess. Um, and it's all related to my Achilles tendon, but it, it made me kind of research more about movement mm-hmm. and how you use your body within a certain environment or context than following a certain kata or style. Yeah. Um, we can I can say the same thing with my martial arts and also with my dancing. So it made me allow to explore my own body more than what's told to be good and efficient and traditional. Because yeah. like, even with punching, maybe like somebody says like a jab should be in this way or that way or that way, right? Um, but I think I think it allowed me to kind of get out of like what been taught to me and what's supposed to be textbook friendly or like text text textbook but good to what actually matched my personality myself and how i should develop myself yeah anything with parkour right yeah it's interesting like you so 
I've done a little bit of training. I've done one or two workshops. Yes, I can't remember. And I've talked to him a couple of times. And I see that it's tremendously aligned with like ecological dynamics in the world. It is. And, uh, and Yosef's been a little bit of a mystery man when I, when I push him on my subject, but it seems to me like he's, he's, he's speaking that language more and more in some of the stuff that I put out. But like from the ecological dynamics perspective, the thing is that there's no fundamental jab, right? There are, there are general characteristics that have, you know, that are, that are going to be there, but you know, whether it's optimal to hit with your, your fist horizontal or vertical or three quarters. Um, it depends on the context. It depends yes. how, you know, what your angle is, where you're coming in from. Like if you think about, um, something like a, a hook, right? Mm-hmm. You want to land with your, your fist horizontal or vertical or even the other direction. Mm-hmm. Well, that actually all depends on what part of the head you're impacting. Yeah. And how far your, your hand is from your shoulder. Mm. Um, and you can, you can, you know, and then people's individual anatomy, the angles, the timing, like all this stuff is what actually determines that proper technique. Mm. If you go and stand in front of a mirror and practice a punch that, you know, looks textbook, um, not actually going to be very good at punching people. Not at all. And it's the same thing with parkour or even dancing, you know, like maybe a Kong should look in a certain way. But it all depends on the context. Yeah. Like, you know, split steps are ideal when you're taking off of a flat surface that's sort of, uh, you know, continuous. Mm-hmm. But we all have to switch to a punch when we're taking off of a narrow surface. Exactly. Exactly. So and it's long to punch, it's just adapted within a specific context. Exactly. And it's also with your mind as well. So, um, but, but it's crazy because nowadays a lot of young athletes is more because they taught they're taught in a parkour gym um the technique is ingrained in their body right it's it's and also like maybe like somebody like a like a ballet dancer yeah the technique is so ingrained that they they can't do anything else yeah. besides that technique yeah which was my problem right I was so clean at whatever I was doing, but I had nothing else than my own movement. Yeah, it couldn't be as adaptive. Uh, I had a, a really wonderful athlete that I worked with who's a, now a circ performer. Okay. I'd come from a really strong classical dance background. She came wow. doing some parkour in the trees with me and she's really, really strong, really agile, really athletic, um, but she could not run and not point her toes on every step. Right. It's her running awkward from a parkour perspective, right? Yes. I, uh... Extra tension, all of this extra motion that's totally automatized in her, right? But is not an adaptive outside of dance performance at all, right? Mm-hmm. I suppose in circ performance, it's good for her too. Her lines look nice. But if she was in any kind of uh, athletic performance where it's not aesthetically judged, right? Playing soccer, football, baseball, you know, uh, ski racing, parkour racing, chase tag, like none of all of that's just going to get in our way. Yeah, totally. 
that's why my philosophy is like in the preparation of young athletes, we should be focusing not on the aesthetics of skills decontextualized, but on games that teach the fundamental capacity to adapt, which is most definitely in fighting monkey. Totally. And I think, I think that's the ability to become anybody, mm -hmm. um, or anything is way more important to than mastering a certain skill because mastering a certain skill it takes time but only thing that you need is time yeah. right it's it's actually not too hard to master a technique if you put the work and time in it mm -hmm. it's it's way more harder to be innovative adaptive and to move within a context because that that takes a certain amount of um brain power and um softness of mind and a way of thinking which which takes longer to learn and you need to learn in a certain environment to do that yeah you all learn in a variety of environments so that you're attuning to different age and rare relationships uh mm -hmm. robert Bickey's work on relevance realization is really really powerful and kind of understanding why you want to go out and source these types of practices because of how it attunes you to I mean, essentially higher level wisdom generation. Mm, mm -hmm. So I, I feel like there was one other thing that I wanted to touch base with you, but um, I can't remember what it was. So I think that we'll, we'll, we'll call it there for the day. Um, All right. Marissa, if folks are interested in your movement and what you're doing, and is there any work that you have coming up or how should people find you? What should they know about you? Um, so basically I have this uh, Instagram account called Shinobi Mover, which I update almost daily now um i actually have a i'm gonna have a baby and april 30th so i'm actually taking a break from yesterday but uh if you want to look at like my my past work my workshops uh, my one-on-ones i upload almost every day awesome. so yeah please check me out there yeah for a of our audience is in uh is in japan and is looking for this kind of hybrid movement that respects uh the, the games, you know, that's something that, uh, that I think Moss is doing really well and lots of beautiful movement, hybridization from dance, parkour, all of it. It's wonderful. I do remember what my last question was for you, so I will go ahead and ask it. Okay, sure. Combining all of these elements, the dance element, the parkour element, the games that you're getting from fighting walking, the conceptualization, the body structure stuff, what does a week of training for you look like? And now... That can be a difficult question, but like if you try to just get the archetypal week in your mind, how are you going about your practices and what does a, a, a practice look like? So um, I train at least three hours a day. Okay. Um, every day as much as possible. Sometimes like when I don't have any work or my wife doesn't need me, maybe like six to eight hours. Um, but... I, I do at least one hour of joint articulation or joint control kind of work. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's the zero forms that Fighting Monkey introduced, or maybe it's like some kind of joint mobilization kind of work that you, you, you're imagining you do it. Maybe it's like popping, locking, um, isolation kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, maybe it could be Tai Chi, yoga. But I try to um, put in one hour of practice to move the exactly the way i imagined right um because that's very important for me yeah. 
Um, and then depending on the day, maybe I do parkour, maybe I do dance, maybe I do um, like a narrow like boxing, kickboxing, MMA kind of situation practice. Um, depending on the day, I do weight training. But it's all depending on how my body feel in the morning after that one hour of strict joint exercise. And then I, I can feel myself and be like, okay, maybe today I need a certain amount of weight training or maybe I need to do like a certain amount of gymnastics rings or maybe I need to go out to the gym and just roll around with a couple people. Yeah. So when you, so you're parkour training, your martial arts training and your dance training, are they relatively separated or is it just sort of kind of a general theme that you're going to? It's uh, it's more of a theme actually. You know, so maybe like I start to do a parkour training, right? And then it just like turns out to be a parkour dance combined kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then maybe like I go to the gym and start rolling and then maybe like me and my friends are talking and, and it becomes an MMA or it becomes more of a wrestling than a BJJ. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. it's very organic. It's very organic. The only strict thing that I do is joint articulation. I find it interesting because I... I I had a really amazing crew in in Seattle who I was working with who we could kind of really start to integrate all of the things. And then when I moved to Bellingham, like with COVID, everyone moved away from Seattle. Right, of course. Here, but primarily I've had access to parkour community. So mm. guys in their early 20s who really are just focused on training parkour. So if I go train parkour, it's just parkour. Mm. I go train martial arts, I'm working with them in major, but I'm just training martial arts. So I'm trying to get back to that point where it's hybridized in my own practice. And I haven't been practicing dance um, really at all. Mm-hmm. And I want to get back to that because there was a period of time when I was I was dancing a lot with the trees in Seattle. Oh, no way. Really oh. wonderful experience. So that's why I was curious how people are doing that because there is times when you need to kind of um, narrow what's happening mm-hmm. in a session and dive into it. And then there's times when you got to widen it and try to hybridize and intentionally cross-pollinate. Um, Definitely. Interesting process to understand when you're sort of pulling the ingredients out and focusing on a single ingredient. And then when you're trying to be like, okay, we're having Mexican-Korean food tonight, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's interesting that you say that. Um, this is a ninjutsu, ninjutsu term or ninjutsu ideology, but... Um, it says that dancing and uh, fighting is actually the same thing in a different coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, f- you flip the coin, the movement of uh, the fighting becomes a dance. Mm-hmm. Where, where, but when you flip the coin in an other way, the dance becomes a martial arts. Yeah. There's a uh, very interesting intersection between dance and martial arts. Many dance forms uh, are based on martial movements, like a chasse and a... Mm-hmm. And, yeah. In ballet comes from movements that are used in pipe formations. Really? That's my understanding. Of it. Yeah. Because you might be able to push forward at mm-hmm. a specific coordination. Um, you know, you have like Highland dance that's done over solar and you know, your classic dancing. You can see these things. There's, um, yeah, I have various friends who have dug deep into this. And like, if you look at the traditional Chinese martial arts, Theater, dance, and martial arts are very, very deep in the point. And sure. it's so mm-hmm. it's all stuff. Uh, and 
and then from from within our theory, right? We, mm-hmm. uh, well, actually, we got this term from, from Friday Monkey, but it helped mm-hmm. me conceptualize other things. Body to body practices, right? Which is all the things where you're interacting with another body. Mm-hmm. So obviously, dance can a body to body everything, right? You can be dancing to find out kind of what's happening with your joints. You can right. an ob- you can dance with a, par- a tree doing parkour. Mm-hmm dance with uh juggling mm-hmm. or you can dance with another person but something mm-hmm. about the person can be totally expressive and cooperative or it can be totally competitive and non-expressive oh, mm. a whole spectrum that exists in between and the, the exploring that spectral i think makes her practice beautiful yeah because you you, you can um develop so much and so many different layers. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I really like Capoeira. Like, um, as a self-defense MMA martial artist, like people are like, ah, oh, it's not a great martial art. As far as being the best at making the other guy fall down uh, or choke them out, it's not. But as a tool to build overall movement competency, mm-hmm. that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary for sure. Okay. Wow. I'm sleepy, so I got no worries, no worries. And thank you so much for taking your time and talking to me. This has uh, been a great experience, and I would love to meet you someday, man. Like if you if you ever visit Japan, hit me up, Mikasa Sukasa. Sounds good, man. I would. I uh, we'll see. But uh, yeah, man, come on over here as well. And um, thank you. About to get a chance to train together. So yeah, that'd be awesome. Bye for today. Bye for today. Thank you so much. Peace.